Heights for the summer because I really appreciate how Alamo Heights does summer. You know, we, we do it well. We take our rest, don't we? And we travel and we go and see new things. I've enjoyed uh, just this week checking out where some of my friends are uh, this summer, being amazed by their new adventures and their, the new sights that they're seeing. Uh, my oldest daughter was showing me on Facebook that one of her friends has a picture this week standing in front of the Eiffel Tower. And uh, I have a friend whose niece is in Guatemala this week. She's a college-aged girl, and she's on a mission trip, and she's assisting in some of the surgeries there. So she's scrubbing in, and I'm sure that that is a new and amazing experience for her. And um, you well know that some people from New Heights, from this very church, are in Israel right now, and they might be um, at the Wailing Wall today seeing something amazing. Um, N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament biblical scholar, says that this particular scripture passage in Matthew, where Jesus heals the man who is possessed with the demons, who is blind and mute, leaves those who watch the healing in a sense of amazement. And N.T. Wright says that we can gather from other stories in the gospel and from this story as well, that people who encounter Jesus often left that experience of Jesus asking the question, how did he do that? That's amazing. How did he do that? Have you ever asked that question, how did they do that? Out of just a sense of awe and amazement? Sometimes I think the answer to that question is just a matter of practice or repetition, like when you hear a musician play something really beautiful. Other times the answer to that question is a matter of technology or mathematical calculation. But when Jesus heals this man, and the story is recorded in three of the Gospels, and the crowds ask, how did he do that? The answer is different. It's a matter of spirit. It's a spiritual answer. And so the Pharisees see the crowd's reaction, and probably because the Pharisees are threatened by Jesus, they seek to explain this healing by aligning Jesus with Satan. I noticed this week that there was a New York Times article that related that there is a Pakistani Taliban leader who um, sent out a message this week denouncing the education of teenage girls that was funded by the UN a couple of weeks ago. And this Taliban leader is calling the education, secular education of teenage girls, what? Satanic. Exactly. We still kind of use this tactic today of aligning the opposition, aligning something we're threatened by with Satan. The text, uh, you heard both Heather and Daryl as they read the text, say that the Pharisees don't specifically use the name Satan, but they use the name Beelzebul, which is just a nickname for Satan. Uh, It's kind of a silly nickname and It literally means the Lord of filth or the Lord of the flies. 
it's clear from Jesus's response that we are not to attribute this healing to the Lord of the flies or the Lord of filth. And Jesus says, first and foremost, it just doesn't make sense that I would be aligned with the prince of demons who would have put the demon in. Um, If he were aligned with Satan, why would he take the demon out? The scripture says every kingdom divided against itself. I think Heather said split. Every kingdom divided against itself is just laid waste. No city or house that's divided against itself will stand. And we know this to be true. We know that when we are in a group, whether it's for business purposes or church purposes or families, that the group has to work together for a common purpose to make any progress. So in this biblical story, we have this. Uh, we have a man whose pain is attributed to demon, to a demon. And why would someone who was aligned with the prince of demons take the demon out? One of the things I see, if I just read between the lines of scripture here, is that Jesus is saying, look, this is not a magic trick. This is serious healing. This is lasting work that I'm doing. I'm not going to cast the demon out, put the demon back in, cast the demon out, put the demon back in. No, this is for real. And this is powerful work. This is work against a force that opposes life and freedom. So Jesus' response makes very clear this idea that there are two opposing forces that work in the world, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Now, Satan in Hebrew literally means the adversary or the opponent. And I believe that modern people, I mean, I've fallen into this trap. We become, we've become accustomed of thinking about Satan as a horror movie monster. This last week, my husband and I kind of by mistake went to see the movie, This is the End. Um, And kind of as a side story, there was this really cute little 20-something girl sitting next to me. She kept looking at me, looking at the screen, looking at me. (laughs) And I told Keith afterwards, man, I should have just gone over there and said, yes, it's me. I taught your confirmation class, and here I am. (laughs) In this low-brow movie, you never know where your pastor is going to show up, so watch what you do. But I, I do think that we've become accustomed in this movie, while it's a silly movie, it has some really scary images of what Satan is like or what demons are like. They couldn't have made the demons any scarier in that movie. And I think that's just kind of our our common metaphor that we have as modern people, that we just think Satan is this scary monster, but this wouldn't be the first picture that Hebrew people would have of the devil. You know, most scholars say that the oldest written reference to Satan is in the book of Job, where Satan is not much more than a courtroom opponent to God. So I don't mean to dismiss Satan's power or Satan's work. Maybe I do. Uh, because I, I believe that it's true that not many of us just have this firsthand experience of Satan as a monstrous evil. Some of us do. Some of us do experience darkness to the extreme. But instead, I think that most of us experience 
the kingdom of Satan at work in our everyday lives in very subtle ways. And because we don't talk about that with one another, we often overlook the power and the work of the kingdom of Satan. So we have these two kingdoms that stand in direct opposition to one another. And the faithful of the first century knew about this opposition, this battle that was at hand. And many were hopeful that the Messiah would come and would just physically set things right. That the Messiah would come and just wage a war and set things right for all of God's people. Jesus does agree that there are two sides here and that they battle one another. But the interesting thing, I think, for the people of the first century and for us as well is that Jesus' way of fighting a holy war isn't with weapons or force, but instead with healing and restoring. So Jesus destroys the enemy by restoring the captives. That's what's going on here. And what he wants his disciples to see is to be their work. Restoration. My favorite verse in this passage of scripture is the last verse that was read for us this morning. It's verse number 30. In chapter 12, where Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So that there are these two sides working against one another, and Jesus begins to talk about what these two sides are about. Now, I was sharing this with David this last week, Magnitsky, that this was the verse that I was drawn to in the passage, and he pointed out to me that Jesus in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke says something very different. It's almost as if Jesus contradicts himself because in Mark and Luke, it's chapter 9 in both Gospels, Jesus says, whoever is not against us is for us. What's the deal? I hate contradiction. And I looked it up, and this saying in Mark also follows an exorcism, which is interesting to me. Because it follows an exorcism, the reverse saying in Matthew as well. So the clear takeaway for me is that Jesus' work is about restoration. Jesus' work is about freeing people, healing people, helping people, restoring people, including and gathering them in. You can only gather if you're on Jesus' side. And I love the thought of gathering being God's work because I believe it fits the biblical story. In the chapter, or in a few chapters earlier in Matthew, chapter 9 in Matthew, Jesus tells the disciples that the harvest is plentiful and that God is the Lord of the harvest. And I think that would be just a familiar concept to the faithful people of the first century. They would get that God is the Lord of the harvest. That God seeks to gather and bring in. This would be the story of the Jewish people in exile. That God's gathering them back in. And they would also know annually that God is the God of the harvest. And then there is also, I think, this gospel image of Jesus as a shepherd that gathers all the sheep together. There's the gospel story in Luke where one sheep gets away. Remember that story? And the shepherd goes to gather that one sheep back into the fold. 
So that I believe this image of gathering being about God's work is very true. Um, and and it's, it's very true for Jesus's identity, that Jesus would be about gathering God's people. And if you work against Jesus, verse 30 tells us that you don't gather, but instead you scatter. You divide. You bring about divisions between people and you make sure that they are isolated and excluded. Now, Matthew does record in his story of the gospel that the disciples scatter at the crucifixion. He uses that word. They scatter. They disperse. But then at the resurrection, when the resurrected Christ appears to the disciples, they're gathered back in together. And so the question then for me becomes, do I live under the power of the crucifixion? Or do I live under the even greater power and promise of the resurrection? For me, the coolest part of this particular passage in Matthew is a repetition of a concept. Now, I couldn't find any biblical scholars that agreed with me on this, so I may be completely off. But Jesus says... How foolish it is to think that I am Satan. It makes no sense that I would work against a goal of his kingdom by casting out a demon. And then three times there is this word divided, or as Heather read it, scattered, or uh, split, as Heather read it. So there's this word in um, the NRSV, divided, to divide. And then in verse 30, Satan's work is, in fact, this concept, I think, of dividing or scattering. So for just a a very brief moment, it makes Jesus look like he's got the upper hand and Satan is foolish. Satan's work is ridiculous. It's foolish work to be about division and scattering. That just will never work, would it? It would never work to scatter people unless, unless, unless you could get a screen in everybody's house that they could turn on in the morning and voices would come out of that screen and they would then substitute that screen for relationship. It would never work to be about isolation and exclusion and division unless Unless you could get another screen that you could go to in your own house when you're isolated from other people. And you could go to any place on the globe in current time. And you wouldn't have to go out and experience the real world. It would never work to be about division. Unless you could convince people, every one of us, that our way of seeing things, that our way of believing... My way of believing was the best way. It would never work to isolate, to divide, unless you could convince churches. What if you could convince a congregation or a church that their way of believing the gospel was the only way, was the best way, and that they should cut off from all other churches? Yeah, I suspect Satan's work is not so foolish. You may have heard some people in our congregation talking about their experience of faith walking over the last year. 
And one of the things that I've learned from the faith walking course is that there are times in my life when I hear the voice of shame. Now, shame often speaks to me about how much I don't know, how naive or stupid I am. I think shame speaks to other people differently. I'm in a group with someone who says when they hear the voice of shame, it says to them, if people only knew what you're really like. But for me, my experience of shame is for shame to tell me how inadequate I am, how stupid I am. And I, I'm convinced that this was not the intention or the fault of my parents or my teachers. Although I must have first heard this voice as a child. You know, I'm from the generation, or I was raised by the generation of people who were not told that they were smart because then you wouldn't be humble if you were told how smart you were. So my parents were very intentional to tell me that I was a smart kid. And my teachers told me I was a smart kid and I made good grades. And yet somehow this voice got a stronghold in my life. And I heard it as a child and I I at times hear it as an adult. Well, here's how I recently figured out that that very force works to isolate me. I was on a phone conversation with a friend that I'm in ministry with here at this church, and the voice flared up. I heard the voice say, Dinah, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know anything about this situation. You should not be involved here. And I did what I do when I hear that voice, which is run. So I closed the conversation down really quick. I got off the phone. Well, one of the things I've learned in faith walking is that a conversation never has to be over. So I got a little bit bold and I went back to that friend and I said, let's continue this topic. Let's continue this conversation. And I was authentic with her and I confessed to her what I had done. And she was authentic with me. And you know what? I think right in that very conversation, we tied up the strong man. And I look forward to plundering his house with her. You just can't sit on division and isolation. It really is how Satan wants to get a foothold into the community of the faithful. Well, I had an amazing experience this summer. I had the opportunity to go to Colorado with my three children while they took music lessons there. And I've done this before with my two older daughters, but this was the first year that we got to take my six-year-old son with us. And so every day as he went to music classes, I followed along with him and went to classes with him. And... As luck would have it, he had this really wonderful piano teacher that we've had in the past, Miss Jane Reed. And I like to go and observe her piano classes, not because I'm a gifted musician, I'm not at all, but because I admire the way that she treats her students. She treats them with such honor and respect that I feel like any time I get to watch her teach a class, I learn something about how to value people. Well... The students were all five and six years old, and there were four of them in a class, and they had to wait their turns 
at the piano each time when we were in there. So it was hard to be fourth. (laughs) When you were fourth in the class, you had to wait about 40 or 45 minutes before you got to play the piano. And each of the students got to take one day in that fourth position. Now, on the day that it was Jessa's turn to be fourth in the class, I happened to be sitting right next to Jessa and her mother. And she waited for about 40, 45 minutes. And by the time it got to the end of that waiting time, she was doing silent acrobatics in her chair. And her mother gave her the stink eye. You know that eye? You've all had mothers. You know what that's like. It's that look that says, soon enough, it's just going to be you and me, child. All these people won't be with us. And right after Jessa got the stink eye, the timer went off and it was her turn at the piano. So Jessa approached the piano and she looked the piano teacher in the eye and Jessa started to cry. And Miss Reed, she's older than I am, but she quickly dropped to her knees and she just held Jessa in her arms. And then she looked in Jessa's eyes and she said, Jessa, what's the matter? And Jessa said, I'm sad. I'm in trouble. (laughs) And Miss Reed said, Jessa, you have a good mommy. Your mommy loves you very much. But I need you to get through this because this is our special time together. And I have important things to teach you. There is a force at work in my life that sometimes speaks to me in such a way that I feel bad about myself, that I'm sad, that I want to be isolated and away from everyone else. But there's a greater force, a force that reminds me, Dinah, you have a perfect Heavenly Father, who loves you very much, get over this, because you have important things to learn and to do. Let's bring in the kingdom. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so very thankful that uh, you love each of us so very much, and we bless you and thank you. That your Holy Spirit is at work among our community in a powerful and forceful way. That you seek to unite us, to gather us in, and to bring us together. Uh, Lord, it is your hope that we will see the truth about who we are um, in, in your eyes and hear the truth about who we are in your voice. So that we might partner with you into bringing about the kingdom of God. Amen.